The physician is concerned not, like the naturalist, with a wide range of different organisms theoretically adapted in an average way to an average environment, but with a single organism, the human subject, striving to preserve its identity in adverse circumstances. This dynamic, this striving to preserve identity, however strange the means or effects of such striving, was recognized in psychiatry long ago, and, like so much else, is especially associated with the work of Freud. Thus, the delusions of paranoia were seen by him not as primary, but as attempts, however misguided, at restitution, at reconstructing a world reduced by complete chaos. So that's a quote from the introduction to the first section of a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales by Oliver Sacks. Um, I'm Arik, and today, once again, I'm joined by Margaret. Hey, people. What's up? And uh, we have a discussion for you today about a psychological case study from this book. Um, I think, for me, first and foremost, my number one question here after reading this tale is, if you had to recognize me, if you had to pick out like two features to recognize me, what two features do you think you would pick? Hmm. Or do you think maybe not like that you would pick, but that would be defining? Okay, so we're, we're talking about faces. So if I was this yeah, guy, facial features. What are the facial things that features. I would? Uh, it would probably be your facial piercings would be a big one, like your um, earlobes or your nose piercing. A um, lot of bitches have nose rings, though. That's true. That's true. Um, maybe it would be um, the mole you have over there um, on your cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to think about in that way, right? Because, like, I don't perceive your face as a collection of features you know what i mean i perceive it as your face it's incredibly difficult to think in that frame of mind yeah if not nearly impossible because i agree i agree like maybe i think i would pick out like you have a mole on this side of your nose right and then like i don't want to say like ledged eyebrows because there's something better. Yeah, right? No one knows. That's not a thing. Oh, okay. I thought you didn't want to say it because it was like some sort of insult and you were saying that I had bad eyebrows. But no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like, it's like you almost have like a, you know, like a ridge of eyebrows. Interesting. I don't know how to <laughs> I don't know describe that. Um, but anyway... The story we we read, um, first of all, I will, I feel like it's important to preface anything that we talk about in this book as it was published in what, like 1987? I think 1970 is the first edition. Okay. So, um, they've, this neurology is definitely advanced since, uh, this book was published. They know a lot more things now, but... We don't know all of those things, so our frame of mind is just this book. Yeah. But I always find that, you know, like, uh, knowing when something was written, I think especially in, like, a medical 
nonfiction, right, or really anything, is pretty important. Yeah, <laughs> and in in particular with these sorts of psychological and neurology, because the field just advances so quickly and has been so vastly, you know, the sciences of the brain improves so much every like year. Um, yeah, that you know, fifty years is is a long time in that field. So yeah. I guess that's a challenge. Um, Mima, I know you're going to listen to this. You, <laughs> that's my mom. She's a um, a therapist. She has a a couple of masters in psychology. So uh, and therapy. Mima, what I want you to do is tell me what has changed since then and what we know more about, and then I'll talk about it on a future episode. Um, we can discuss the improvements in neurology since this book was first published. Yeah, it's really all up. The keeping us up to date is all on Mima here. Yeah, I guess maybe Ion knows some stuff too because he's a psych major in college back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I, no I literally don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, all that being said, interesting nonetheless. Um, but this, to go back to facial features, this, um, the short story we read today is about a man who mistook his wife for a hat. Um, he has the inability to recognize facial, facial features, um, which they note in there somewhere that it's now known, I'm going to butcher this word, but it's now known as a condition called prosopagnosia. Um, which is known as face blindness. Um, you can't recognize people's faces. Prosopagnosia, I think, like, if you look up things on it now, it's typically, like, they find it in people who have it since birth. But I think in this case, um, they believe that this man had a brain tumor, I think is how um, his story ended. Yeah, so this is a super fascinating thing, and it's kind of jumping to the end of the case study. Um, but he basically gets to diagnose this guy, sort of, like have a couple of sessions with him, document the super interesting story, and then he just never gets to hear from this guy again. He has no idea really what happens to him. Um, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about um, in general. You know, as a psychiatrist and as a physician, um, you know, that's something that they probably have to deal with all the time. I mean, I know I've definitely done that to doctors where, like, I've gone in with something and they've said, oh, yeah, you know, make a follow-up in a few months and we'll talk about it and I've just never come back ever again. Now, I don't think anything I've done is as interesting as that. I'm just like, <laughs> my knee hurts. And the doctor's like, well, there's nothing structurally wrong with it, so go to physical therapy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of like I'm imagining if, like, at my own work, like... I would start a project and then just all of a sudden just completely it's gone and I have no ability to follow up on it or look at it or understand it anymore. And this is, I think what's really interesting here is it also comes from a time where the physician like went to this man's house, had like a meal with his, like this, his patient and his wife. Mm -hmm. And then like nothing ever came of anyone. Like, nothing came of that. Yeah. Really. They just, like, other than this story. And I think he doesn't even really diagnose the man or give him much of anything. He kind of just tells him, like, yeah, I have no idea, dude. Um, right. <laughs> what right. is up here? Not sure how to help you. And then he refers to somebody else's papers 
that he found later yep. that referenced the same condition. Yeah. Which this man's condition is that um, he, people in his life, he's a music teacher at a school um, and he just like doesn't recognize anything, you know? Um, like he can recognize things, but it's kind of like everyone knows he's got some weird vision. Like there's something going on there. Like he sees like kids where it's just like a trash can. Um, yeah, it's like super mysterious because he's otherwise like super functional, super intelligent, super skilled musician. Um, and he can clearly like see specific things like he can um identify things with with his eyes like features of things and shapes and and various things like that but um he just can't actually place what they are so like you said um there are like these hilarious instances of him like in the street like patting the head of a water hydrant or a parking meter thinking that it's the head of a child or talking to like a carved knob on the furniture and being astounded when they don't reply. And people just thought they were weird mistakes. They kind of laughed them off as jokes because it was like so bizarre. And he otherwise seemed like totally fine. Yeah, like a fully functioning guy, living yeah. his life, doing his thing. Um, but just, yeah, sometimes Pat's parking meters, which is pretty weird, I would say. Yeah. Um, Mysterious. Yeah. And it kind of like what it ends up being is kind of how you referenced um when i was talking about how you would point out my face and you said i don't see the features he only sees the features exactly in things he's not seeing the whole picture right um yeah right so yeah um it 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 basically seems like he sees like the geometry of things um but not the whole of things you know yeah it's like the the image is received but then the way that the brain processes the image there's something lost in translation um in this man's brain um it stops the brain stops putting the whole thing together and kind of leaves some pieces out um which is really fascinating i think um and it um yeah. So so I really like the way he kind of introduces the case. Okay, so I'm going to take it back a step from, like, um, that and kind of walk walk through, like, what happens, right? So he, like, brings the guy in, or the guy comes in to see the um, neurologist, Oliver Sacks, eventually, the author of the book. Um, and he's, like, eventually he's, like, okay, you know, what seems to be the matter? And the guy says, you know... Uh, Dr. P is the pseudonym they use for him in the in the in the case study. Dr. P says nothing that I know of, but people seem to think there's something wrong with my eyes. But you don't recognize any visual problems is like the response of Oliver Sacks. And the guy basically says, "No, not directly, but I occasionally make mistakes." And then you know, he goes out, he talks to the guy's wife, he comes back and the guy's talking about like the symphony of the street sounds and how they sound like Honegger's Pacific 234 like he's quoting like symphonies and like super articulate and all of these things and they're going through a neurological exam and everything is is totally normal and 
seems fine. And then at one point, he uh, takes off the guy's left shoe. The doctor takes off his left shoe, scratches the sole of his foot with a key just to test uh, a reflex. And then he excused himself to put together his ophthalmoscope and um, asked the guy to put on his shoe. And then... To his surprise, a minute later, the guy hasn't put on the shoe, right? And then they have this kind of comical exchange where he's like, uh, I'll just read from the book. Can I help? I asked. Help what? Help whom? Help you put on your shoe. Ah, he said. I had forgotten the shoe. Adding sotto voce. The shoe? The shoe? He seemed baffled. Your shoe, I repeated. Perhaps you'd put it on. He continued to look downwards, though not at the shoe, with an intense but misplaced concentration. Finally, his gaze settled on his foot. That is my shoe, yes? Did I miss hear? Did he miss see? My eyes, he explained, and put a hand to his foot. This is my shoe, no? No, it is not. That is your foot. There is your shoe. Ah, I thought that was my foot. Was he joking? Was he mad? Was he blind? If this was one of his strange mistakes, it was the strangest mistake I had ever come across. End quote. I think what's the most fun about that's how they realize, like, that's how the doctor, like, is like, okay, this is what's wrong. It's totally by accident. Like, there's no, like, (laughs) he goes through all of his little, like, reflex procedures and everything is lined up and checked. The man's, like, seems healthy as a clam. Um... Is that a saying? Yeah, I think so. Okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is now. (laughs) Cool. Started here. Um, (laughs) At me. Um, Yeah, he's healthy as a clam, but then he cannot figure out how to put a shoe on. (laughs) He's like, is my foot my shoe? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, It's such a bizarre, like... It kind of boggles the mind, right? Like, this dude is walking around. He's living his life. He's existing in society and in the world. Makes me wonder if he drives. Yeah, I was wondering that, too. I hope I he doesn't. I hadn't thought about that. Whew. That sounds extremely dangerous. Um, I would think not, because he probably would have gotten in a horrible car crash. Who knows? There are people who drunk drive for years and never crash their car. That's true. That's definitely true. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. <laughs> totally different, though. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, and he kind of just like so. Then the guy was ba- the doctor was basically like, okay, like I need to think about this and um, you know come back in in the future. Basically, he's like, I, we need to. I'll come to your house in a few days and see you in your environment. Um, and then he shows up with a bunch of like weird objects and. Uh, pictures and and things he brings Um, him a bunch of shapes to identify in a flower yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so the shapes was super interesting so these are the um the platonic solids and he and he starts with these and he hands a cube to the guy and he's the guy is instantly like oh yeah of course it's a cube and then he passes another one over and he's like what is this and the guy's like a dodecahedron of course and don't bother with the others i'll get the icosahedron too don't bother yeah exactly he like knows instantly he's like oh yeah these are the platonic solids they're these different types you're gonna give me this thing next don't even bother but again this is the same guy who just before thought his foot was a shoe 
<laughs> like what's his funny, own foot. What's funny about that to me is like, I would want to ask this man. It's like, if you're looking down and there's your shoe on one side and your foot on the other, can you not wiggle your toes and find it? I would love to know that. Um, it's fascinating, right? It boggles yeah. the mind. It, it it really defies understanding. I think that's one of For the sure. amazing things about psychology and neurology in general is that like it's impossible to really understand what any of these patients or case studies what the person is actually experiencing you know you, i can't i don't even know what you're experiencing right on like a yeah. day-to-day basis yeah um and it's a super interesting thing to think about you're just in this you know state of consciousness um and you know and then if there's like a it's almost like there's a fundamental unnamed tweak in this person's consciousness and these people like these neurologists are trying to like pinpoint it right so they can be better functioning in normal society which is like i think also an interesting thing like this man doesn't think there's anything wrong he's just like Ugh, people are annoyed with me seems lame you yeah. know like my wife is bothered because i confuse her with a hat <laughs> which if i were i would be bothered if you didn't you couldn't tell me from a hat yeah um yeah. the okay so i should probably since we're talking about the hat thing we should find the quote where he actually talks about um oh yeah where that happens so this is actually still in the first appointment that we were talking about not the second appointment the appointment where the patient is at the doctor's office yes correct and um after the shoe thing he resumes his examination and then at one point he pulls out a National Geographic magazine. He shows him something. He asks him to describe it. Um, and it became apparent to the doctor that he could never see like the scene as a whole on any of the pages. Like he would pick up little specific features and his eyes would dart around a color, a striking brightness, a shape. But he would never be able to understand the scene as a whole. Um and he showed him the cover, which is an unbroken expanse of Sahara dunes, and says, what do you see here? And the guy says he sees a river and a little guest house with its terrace on the water, and people are dining on the terrace, and there are colored parasols. And this whole time, he's just looking, like, not even at the magazine, just into midair and describing things that don't exist. That's crazy. Right? Like, a guy who's otherwise just completely, like, you know... Yeah. with it he passed again like all of the things in the actual exam but he's just imagining this thing i wonder like what the difference is between what that man envisions like would you call that a hallucination is he hallucinating you know yeah. i don't know that's a good question yeah it's a good question and it's like i mean it the thing that i Oh, you get to... Okay, yeah, I should should finish that. So, okay, after that, it's at the very end of the thing, and I'm going to quote from there. I must have looked aghast, but he seemed to think he had done rather well. There was a hint of a smile on his face. He also appeared to have decided that the examination was over and started to look around for his hat. He reached out his hand and took hold of his wife's head, tried to lift it off to put it on. He had apparently mistaken his wife for a hat, his wife looked as if she was used to such things. <laughs> like, what's, 
again, funny is that he try grabs his wife's head and lifts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not just like, huh, this feels like a head. It's just like, you know, continuing on, living his life. Do do do. Yeah, so he's just convinced that it's a hat. His wife. Her Interesting. head. Right? Like the thing that I would love to do, and and I think he um Sachs talks about this a little bit in like the notes after this case study, is like what is he actually like? What is that actually like? Like, there's nothing I would want more when I read these cases to be able to, for a short period of time, like, you know, get in this guy's head and see what that is. That's something that always, like, fascinates me. I think about it actually with, like, you know, like, animals as well. Whenever oh, I play fully. with, like, uh, dogs or, like, you know, when I'm messing with our cat or something, there's many times where I'm like, I wish that I could just understand for, like, 30 seconds the you know be inside of the consciousness of this other being and and see what that's like because you know what would that tell me about my own consciousness and um, our own you know perception of the world to see it through any other lens but you can't you can never do that yeah um which is just so like i don't know it's like the i definitely see why people are attracted to this field um because it's like like one of the great mysteries of being a living and sentient creature is this idea that what is everyone else experiencing? What's actually going on? <laughs> yeah, and trying to be like, I wonder how much like kind of ethical ground you play with there as a neurologist is you know what what is the baseline of how people are perceiving their own world? Um, you know what obviously this man like thinks his wife is a hat so there's you know you're missing a baseline there but um for lots of other people you know how do you determine a true baseline and how different is everyone's baseline like how from patient to patient like how different is that baseline does that make sense yeah yeah no I, i think it totally makes sense right and it's it's a super interesting question um that's one I don't super know the answer to, but my no. guess, based on the intro... So in the intro, he talks about how, like, um, you know, the vast majority the of... The introduction to the whole book, you mean, Yes, yeah? yeah. Okay. Um, the vast majority of the history of neurology and neuropsychology is a history of the investigation of, like, the left hemisphere of the brain. Um, and how they're... He talks about it later as well, how it's, like, this very, like mechanical um schematic driven understanding of the brain as a machine right and like you know there's this part of it that does this this part of it that does that so i would assume that you know for a baseline they would have like they would basically like checklistify it you know as much as possible maybe like there's this can they do this can they do that um but you know i don't know that that really captures like the essence of what it is to be normal Um, Right. And I think like, especially in like a neurologist frame of reference, it's like he even when he passed the introduction and in the like baseline, I guess, appointment with the patient, Mm -hmm. he has he goes through all of the normal steps, what they would do, you know, for everyone, I would assume Mm -hmm. Um, passes. The guy passes. The patient's fine. But he has to, like, he notices the little blip with, uh, he thinks his foot is a shoe. 
and then brings out the National Geographic magazines, right. you know, and kind of things like that. Um, and I've read um, another kind of uh, neurosurgeon book, the When Breath Becomes Air. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of, he kind of touches on similar situations where, you know, as a neurologist, you kind of are going with, and I think most doctors, right, you can go through the routine tests, but sometimes that's not going to tell you anything about, like, your patient could pass the routine tests, but something is still wrong with them. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of, I think, like, having to figure out what that is. And I think especially when it comes to, like, your brain, because even now, like, there's a lot of things they don't know about the brain. Um, yeah. You know, and they can do, like much better brain scans now than when they wrote this book for sure for Um, sure you know and there's still so many mysteries so it's kind of um it's a really interesting i think challenge of that profession yeah definitely it's like you're trying to uncover this mystery um and again like you like you said it's like you have these checklists or guidelines um that you're working through but oftentimes that may not be the thing that really helps you figure it out at all which is crazy um so then going back to this like second appointment he comes to the house he brings a bunch of uh objects he shows the uh platonic solids and the guy just instantly knows them Mm-hmm. Um, he shows him he presents him with a flower and basically he's handing the patient objects and like can you tell me what this object is um he holds a flower and he's like yeah mm, i don't know i think um i can read the real quote um the the patient says i think this could be an inflorescence or a flower could be could be the patient says um and then as soon as he and then the doctor tells him to smell it he smells he's like oh it's a rose it's a rose um he has that like aha moment right where it's like before he's like talking about the shape and he's like oh yeah um i think a couple lines before he says it's like a linear expulsion or something like that um -hmm. what is that that he says um heavenly smell cold day um oh yes um he he took it to uh he took this is again the patient sorry (laughs) for jumping around this the the patient is holding the flower from the doctor he took it like a botanist or morphologist given a specimen not like a person given a flower about six inches in length, he commented, a convoluted red form with a linear green attachment. <laughs> um, it's a really interesting way to describe a rose. Right. Um, and I think, like, what really got me was he, the doctor then, after the rose, um, hands the patient a glove. Um, yeah, I And really the man, like, the cannot figure it out. Um <laughs> I think the funniest is when the, the patient tries to get his guess um, of what the glove is. He says, 
It could be a change purse, for example, for coins of five sizes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and then what the doctor points out in the writing is that, um, you know, you could hand a glove to a five-year-old and figure out that it belongs, like it matches a piece of his body, his Mm -hmm. hand, right? This, This adult man who is otherwise brilliant, right? Has worn gloves before. Has definitely worn gloves before. Does not have any idea. The doctor has to very explicitly tell him, like, it's a glove. Yeah. Um, I thought the uh, specific description, again, like the geometric description the guy made of the glove was super interesting. What, what did he call it again? Um... Those are the parts that really stood yes. out to me, so, being kind of a math brain person. So, like, those super geometric descriptions, I was like, wow, this is, like, detailed and interesting. Like, I wouldn't describe it in such detail, the form of this thing. Right. Like, if my eyes didn't really work, I don't think that I could pick up and identify a dodecahedron. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, but for the glove, um, he says, the patient says, a continuous surface enfolded on itself it appears to have five out pouchings if this is the word <laughs> like what um <laughs> and i think um kind of as it goes on um i think what really for me what really stood out is that the patient um his wife kind of reveals to the doctor that he sings to himself all the time everything that he like does with ease it's he does it as he's singing to himself he makes up songs all the time constant humming and that's just how he can get his brain to work which is like you know why he has obviously stuck with music in his life um yeah i think that's super crazy i mean i think one of the and she talks about how like if he loses the thread of the song, he just gets completely lost and bewildered. And the doctor gets to see this because after all of the exams, um, they the wife invites him, invites both of them. Is like, here's some tea or coffee and some cakes on the table. And there's like an assortment of little cakes. And the guy just starts like singing and munching away and like, la di da. He's kind of off in his own world eating. And then yep. there's like a knock on the door or something, and he just looks like bewildered and scared, like he doesn't know where he is. He can't see the table. He's just like lost. Probably looks like uh, someone on like day two at like a music festival. Like, <laughs> <laughs> someone's like giving them a light show for the first time, and they've just he's just like lost it. Yeah, um. he's gone. All he sees is like shapes. Yeah. <laughs> um. And uh, yeah, but like it's. But things like smells of things, it's in the um, situation where they're eating, it's the smell of coffee yeah, at the table. Yeah, that brings him back. That brings him like back to the situation and it kind of allows him to jump back into song and um, continue with his meal. Um, they taught, like the wife mentions that he has like songs to help him take a bath, songs to help him dress himself. Um which, you know, I think you sing a lot, like, let alone if you had to, like, <laughs> sing songs. It's a cat. Cat's robot dad feeding her. Yeah, um, sorry about that. That's robot dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, really, really interesting. Another thing that they touch on that I think kind of goes back to with this man, especially kind of where there's the... the 
maybe not imbalance, but like the off from normal balance, which I guess whatever, um, of the left and right brain in his paintings that he has that the doctor sees in the patient's home. Um, you know, he kind of, he says that, um, all his or earlier work was naturalistic and realistic with vivid moods and atmosphere, but finally detailed and concrete. Then years later, they become less vivid, less concrete, less realistic and naturalistic, but far more abstract, even geometrical and cubist. Finally, in the last paintings, the canvases become nonsense, or nonsense to me, mere chaotic lines and blotches of paint. I, I thought it fascinating. Yeah, I found that to be a really fascinating one because these are like the art that he did over the years while like studying and teaching and whatnot and that he's now doing less of or has stopped doing. Um, and I thought the part where he's basically like, he says to the wife something like, you know, you can see his visual acuity reducing over time. And she's like, you know, doctors are such Philistines, like, mm-hmm. um, and says some like art school shit to him. Yeah, she's like, can you not see artistic development? how he renounced the realism of his earlier years and advanced into abstract, non-representational art. And then the doctor is like, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, he kind of writes to himself later. He had indeed moved from realism to non-representation, to the abstract. Yet this was not the artist, but the pathology, advancing, advancing towards a profound visual agnosia in which all powers of representation and imagery, all sense of the concrete, were being destroyed. Yeah. Um, so that's fascinating, right? It's yeah. like his art as pathology, right? Where you can, where one person sees artistic development and what may well, in fact, be artistic development is also um, basically the degradation of his visual acuity or like... And Certain facilities. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing that's super interesting is it his eyes themselves seem to be totally fine. Like the problem seems to just be with the brain's visual cortex and his ability to interpret images. I mean, yeah, it's again, I think completely with the processing center and how it's the brain is taking the image, but not processing the whole of the image. Right. It's only processing pieces. It's not giving him the whole picture. Um, it's super interesting to think like, you know, he may have had it at one point and then he lost it, but he never noticed it and he has no idea that it's gone. Right. It's almost like, in obviously for everyone involved, the reader, the doctor, the patient, um, not the best that the doctor was never able to follow up with this patient. It would have been fascinating to know, like the history of that like follow that and say like when did people in your life start noticing this how long has it been like this you know like what are the changes in the past several years yeah um but you know it was never recorded no so it is what it is i thought another super interesting one going uh, a little bit back um in the case study was when um after showing him a bunch of objects and things he uh, the doctor Oliver Sacks takes down a bunch of photos of the family of him uh, of um, the guy himself, Doctor P, of his wife, of his the family, patient, yeah. um, of of all. Yeah, the patient. I realize that saying Doctor P probably makes it more confusing because okay. he's a doctor, and I keep saying the doctor. 
When I say the doctor, I'm talking about Oliver Sacks, the, the author. Yeah, the, the author is what we'll go with. <laughs> so um, basically, he shows him pictures of like all of these people in his life near and that dear. That he has him. like hanging up in his house. Yeah, the patient does. Yep. And he can't recognize any of them. He can't recognize himself. He can't recognize his wife. He recognizes his brother, um, which and it's is the of only a specific one. feature, right? Yeah, he he lists it. He says, um, you know, like, oh, I would I would know his um, like square jaw and big teeth anywhere, right? And he but re- not like his brother. He doesn't recognize his brother. He recognizes like. His mouth, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you like know? the like... shape of his skull, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or he recognizes Einstein, presumably because of the hair, you know, and the glasses and, and yep. the way he looks. Um, again, it's those very distinctive features. So that's why Margaret started this whole thing with, if you were going to only identify me by, you know, my features, what would you identify me by? Because that's how this guy, you know, seems to perceive the world and, and everything around him. Which is mind-boggling. It's actually a really interesting exercise. I encourage you to, like, try to do this with someone, um, anyone who you know, a friend, partner, whatever it is, um, and like, try to think about it. Like, what, uh, what single feature could you identify them, or who in your life do you think you could identify by just a single feature? Right. Mm -hmm. So like for me, I think, you know, an easy one is like maybe you would be able to identify by tattoos. Well, I wonder there it's like, is he kind of like the art that he has produced? Is he himself when he's looking at a tattoo, like, is he still just seeing the features? Like he's still not seeing the greater like picture of the tattoo there. That's true. Like maybe if you had just like a giant I don't know, like, you were the lizard man who's, like, tattooed your eyeballs black. Yeah. Maybe he'd recognize that. Yeah, or, like, a big face tattoo he would recognize, perhaps. Maybe. Because that's super distinctive, specific feature. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one, one thing I found, another thing that this man do- does, um, and his wife mentioned, is he, another way he recognizes people is by their movements. It's kind yeah. of like, it made me um, think of, like, sometimes when you're birding, you have to try to, like, identify the bird by the way it flies. You know, is it, like, a soaring bird? Um, is it, like, what is it doing? You right. know, like what a, actions like are Like a kite, it's... right? Exactly. I think kites are a really good example of that. Um, so kites are these raptors, um, a.k.a. birds of prey, um... I mean, you could probably describe what a kite is better than I can. Basically, they're they're flying the way they fly and how you would recognize them. And I think, like, the time that I've seen one and how I recognized it is it flies, like, up high in a field and then, like, has a crazy, like, tail movement to basically hold itself steady in one spot in the air before it does, like, a dive bomb yeah. to catch a spray and then back up. And the way it, like, it almost hovers like a, mm-hmm. like a helicopter or something above mm-hmm. the field and Using then dive its bombs. tail movement. Whereas, like, a turkey vulture, for example, is going to just, like, 
you know, soar in big, wide circles for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if soar is the right word. These are technical birding terms that I don't know the actual, like, def- definitions of. But but this is basically, that's how this man identifies people he knows. Um, uh, I'll read the quote here that um, the doctor kind of gets from his wife. Though he could not recognize his students if they sat still or if they were merely images, he might suddenly recognize them if they moved. That's Carl, he would cry. I know his movements, his body music. Um, So interesting. So interesting. I mean, it's totally like, I think it's a lot of these things of uh, neurology case studies also show how incredible the brain is at adapting to the world around you without even having to like this man's not thinking you know like oh like i can't see carl i can't recognize carl's face but i can recognize his body music um right no he's not but his brain just does that his brain just does that you know or maybe i mean who knows with like all of the singing this man does around his house like it's totally a learned behavior for him to adapt to his life um just fascinating that like again he doesn't think there's anything wrong with him he thinks like he's just totally fine it's kind of like um you know people uh blind people or people with any loss of a sense you know they can adapt they have like some really incredible ways to adapt that having all of the things that these people may lack you couldn't imagine like having your other senses be so good you know yeah like hearing things right as well as like someone who you know is vision impaired might hear right it's fascinating it is super crazy i mean i don't know how um again it's like it goes back to that thing of like you can never perceive what someone else is perceiving right so like for someone who's visually impaired significantly like what is their sense of hearing right like what is it like to hear that Mm-hmm. Um, even this guy, he seems to really rely on his sense of hearing much more than um, most other people would, right? Like, as soon as he hears a student's voice, he he knows it's them. Or, like, he corrects when he's, like, talking to the doctor, when he's talking to the author. He's looking in, like, a random direction until the author replies to him. Then he instantly corrects. Yeah, yeah. Which this man then kind of delves deeper into later that kind of the whole... He talks about judgment and how at this time in neurology, no one was talking about judgment Um, or uh, to, again, read a quote here. Of course, the brain is a machine and a computer. Everything in classical neurology is correct. But our mental processes, which constitute our being and life, are not just abstract and mechanical, but personal as well. And as such, involve not just classifying and categorizing, but continual judging and feeling also. Yeah. Which I think really ties in a lot of what we said, have said about the study of neurology and like what this doctor does to like kind of sleuth out this case. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's super interesting. So there's, okay, there's a couple threads I want to touch on. I really like that quote. Um, That's one that stood out to me as well. Um, I thought that he talked about the parallel between classical neurology and classical physics um, Mm -hmm. in that they're both very, like, 
you know, mechanical and abstract to be really interesting. And then that also I thought about like um, classical economics versus like modern behavioral economics. Mm, um, and I would imagine in other fields as well, maybe you would see um, similar kind of threads, right? Like even something, okay, like like ecology, right? Um, where now, you know, you're going to be taught a very like systems view of an ecosystem in that there are all these super complicated systems and we can't fully understand the whole like we need to try and understand the whole system but we um can't like totally prescribe it whereas in the past it's much more mechanical right like you know this is the water cycle this is this this is this and so this is going to happen i think like honestly i think that that truly kind of shows where things like this book and this science of neurology has advanced drastically it's like you know this this man is kind of really touching on how no one in his field is talking about how there's left brain and right brain thinking and that they're different Mm -hmm. but i think that's much more common now and much more like talked about and realized kind of by the masses is you know there's um to stay with the ecosystems approach like there's how the ecosystem is supposed to work you know like here's like how we drew the system out Mm -hmm. um and how like classically mechanically we think all of these pieces fit together however you know like (laughs) you then kind of throw in all right but it rains a lot this one year so then like everything can change right in the ecosystem because of like just little titches right or i think like especially you know you have the ecosystem and how it's supposed to work now humans live in it everything changes you know like because humans don't subscribe to being that systematic you know um right as much as people try (laughs) it doesn't really work no it's, it's super interesting and i think i see this all over the place i mean i'm just thinking of all these parallels so now another example is like um of course i'm a software engineer so it always comes back to software for me but I mean, he talks about that. He touches on, you know, that there are a lot of these early analogies from the brain mechanics and um, computer analogies. Right. But continue. Yeah. So so there's two ways I want to take the software thing. So the first one is talking about these, like, emergent properties of systems. So the modern theory on building distributed systems, which basically means, like, complicated software systems that run on many different computers and generally talk to each other over a network um, like over the internet or over some private network which you know the vast majority of services you use on a daily basis rely on many 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 distributed systems like facebook or google or any of these websites that you use Um, whatever you're using to listen to this podcast probably has some form of a distributed system behind it in some capacity Um, but basically you know, the, the modern approach to building these systems is to accept that there are these emergent properties of the system that you um, cannot fully test, you cannot fully know. And this is in software where literally like all of the code, you, you could in theory, you know, read all of the code and know all of it, right? Every single um, possible interaction is in a way deterministic because it's what the code is. But the system becomes so complex that you can't. And you basically have to build like fault tolerance into systems. So you just build stuff and you assume things are gonna break and you try to build like resilience into it. Um, And it's like similarly, like, you know, in ecosystems and in sustainability now, you talk a lot about like building resilient systems, building resilient cities. Um, 
I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of my ramble on like um, the relation between even computer science and and this and the progress. Yeah, um, I think kind of with that is one thing I always find interesting about reading these kind of books, um, like the neurology kind of books, is how a lot of the neurologists kind of talk about um, how they love the field that they study because you are centered on the human and like how does the human adapt you know like the human is incredible for that which they are I think like humans have a lot of very unique ways to adapt but I guess for me is I look and find that also in animals all the time you know like there are so many crazy resilient animals out there <laughs> like they'll go through a lot of things um and they just kind of you know like still try to bite you <laughs> yeah i mean some of the stories you've told me like you know the the blind opossums who come in and they're like extremely old they literally can't see but they're just surviving in the wild until someone picks them up and brings them into the wildlife center and sometimes they're like ridiculously obese because they just like eat trash they're just like living the dream out there but they don't have they can't they can't see anything when i worked in um, wildlife rehab in minnesota there was much there were more opossums that like had lost a couple of like digits because it they literally got frostbite <laughs> Crazy. and then they just live their lives like <laughs> they're fine it's wild yeah I don't know. I've seen a lot of very resilient things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I always find that interesting in trying to read it from the um, human doctor perspective, um, having a much more animal-centric view yeah. of medicine myself. Um, Th that is a super interesting perspective. Um, I think it's a good reminder as well of, like, you know, we live in this modern world and we're very sheltered at least, you know, for us in America and in, you know, an upper middle class lifestyle, we're very sheltered from like, you know, the the realities of being a living being in a lot of ways, right? Or, or being an animal in nature, right? Because ultimately, you know, humans are animals, right? Mm -hmm. We're shielded from those realities. But, and it's easy to get like, you know, kind of like overly concerned about everything, right? Like it's easy to become a hypochondriac. But, um, it's equally important to remember that like living beings are capable of a lot of adaptation before something becomes, you know, too much. Right. Um, and especially with like, um, yeah, I don't know. So that's just a reminder of that, I guess. Yeah. I think it really kind of delves into like this book, you know, is only there. He's just writing about how young the science of connecting, like, um, what is it? the human relationship between the brain and the mind you know mm -hmm. now that we know so much more about certain animals like apes or like even dolphins you know what if anything will the relationship between their brains and their minds ever look like um and how would that affect us as humans um right. and how how would that affect how we um, interpret I don't know I guess like ourselves ourselves yeah yeah that's well, super interesting super yeah. interesting just because again a lot of the how we interpret ourselves thing is like there's a lot of 
these sciences that kind of like really um, base it off of like it's only a human characteristic to have these connections like between you know these thinking connections which I think is true to a lot of extents you know like birds don't do math um you know (laughs) (laughs) uh but which man uh for what it's worth you can exploit if you are ever um burdened with orphaned goslings yeah Yeah. orphaned um, canada geese very specifically uh don't try that at home though because they're all so vicious yeah, animals. don't try uh, it. But, but basically, how this works is it, Margaret used to work in waterfowl rehabilitation in Minnesota. So you would basically take, you um, know, go ahead. You can exploit the fact that geese can't count. Um, surprisingly, ducks count. Uh, you know, they know which kids are theirs in a bunch. And if it's not their kid, they don't want that extra thing. Geese, however, they don't count. Uh, so you can kind of. If you put an extra kid kind of in their mix at the right time, right size, you know, you can trick them into having an extra kid. Now, you probably shouldn't, like, give them 10 extra kids because, like, they're going to, they can't, who who can keep 10 kids in this economy? <laughs> Very few people, let alone a goose. They don't have, like, social security numbers um they can't get any government assistance for (laughs) 9x kids um (laughs) no they can't they can't but but yeah you so maybe they can't do wild fostering it's pretty interesting some of them can do math but there we go again where's the connection there the mind and brain connection of a duck yeah that's a that's an interesting one however i will completely um, agree with the fact that we probably shouldn't be dumping money into duck neurology. Um, you know, it's fun to th- contemplate, but uh, please don't, please don't fund that research right now. We need to, you know, cure cancer. Yeah. And stuff. Although to your point, like you said before, like what does understanding that neurology do for human neurology? For sure. I just think we should start with like a more intelligent being than a duck. Yeah, as much ducks as I love are ducks. really stupid. Yeah. Um, okay, but, but going back, um, to that quote that you had talked about, um, it talks about how, like, you know, the brain is not just like a classification and categorization Mm -hmm. machine. Yeah. Um, and there's this idea of judgment. So my, my last, uh, well, I can't promise it's my last, but my second tie into, um, software Mm -hmm. and, um, technology is that, um, you know, there's been this big push about, uh, the use of AI recently, um, deep learning, um, neural nets, you've probably heard about it in at least some like, you know, BuzzFeed article or something. Um, but all of the recent advancements in AI is really on like classification and categorization machines. Like it's essentially applying, um, chaining together really advanced tools of statistical analysis to categorize things or to classify things. And we've seen massive improvement there. Um, but, you know, that that's partially um, – it's just interesting to see the parallel there, you know? Like, I'd be curious to see what the advances are in neurology from 1970 when this was first written. And he said that, you know, the brain – most people in the field were looking at the brain as this machine of classification, categorization to now. And then I, I'm curious as well to see the 
corresponding advance, you know, in AI and in um, computer science from what we have now, which is really advanced classification categorization machines and see if we can ever get to this essence of judgment and generalized AI, which I'm fairly skeptical that we'll see it at least in our lifetimes. Um, But, you know, I am wrong about lots of things all the time. So we'll see. I mean, maybe if we reach um, computers having judgment, um, you get things like Plankton's Karen wife, you know, (laughs) who's uh, talking TV, uh, basically. Yeah. Um, Maybe. Who knows? Or maybe you get Terminator or The Matrix. Maybe all of the above. Maybe the computer Karen is like an essential part of the matrix easily possible easily possible (laughs) (laughs) however um i don't think that's coming anytime soon um so no i don't think so Um, it's interesting it's definitely i think always like really fun and very important to kind of jump back in time sometimes with these science knowledges (laughs) Like these, uh, like medical nonfiction and stuff? I think medical nonfiction, um, honestly, like computer science, history, Mm -hmm. um, we've made a lot of advances very fast. Um, It's kind of, I think looking at the past context is a fun way to think about like how much can change in in the same time span. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, this is something he touches on is the... um, Understanding the history that leads to the assumptions that are baked into the science, right? It's that's like figuring out that baseline. It's discussing that how do you determine the baseline? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is super super interesting. Um, okay, so one last thing on the actual case study that I thought was crazy was that at the end. Um, the patient, Dr. P, was basically like, um, you know, so, Dr. Sachs, um, you find me an interesting case. Can you tell me what you find wrong? And um, I'll quote here with the response. I can't tell you what I find wrong, I replied, but I'll say what I find right. You are a wonderful musician, and music is your life. What I would prescribe in a case such as yours is a life which consists entirely of music. Music has been the center. Now make it the whole of your life. And that's it. He says that, he leaves, and he never sees this patient again. That's crazy. The patient is never even told about what it is that he's missing. Yeah. Can you think about the, like, what are the ethical implications of that, right? Like, as a neurologist in that situation, how do you decide whether or not to describe the guy's problem to him? Because he seems perfectly happy without it, right? Right. And he seems to be functioning generally fine, except for these, like, comical mistakes that he makes. He's just, like, you know, Magoo-like is what he said in one of the things. Just, like, hilarious, right? But it's not, like, causing him danger. It's not causing him harm. It hasn't... It's not affecting his relationships, really. His wife's just, like, hee-hee, silly artist man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that that... There's a lot of those things in... Um, I think, again, especially neurology that are really interesting. I think, like, for me, if I, 
let's pretend I were transported into being a neurosurgeon, I would struggle so much with like the, you know, like what are the ethical dilemmas of going into brain surgery? You know, like you might slip and fall and like now this man will only speak in numbers for the rest of his life. I think there's a lot of ethical dilemmas that have to come in that, let alone like and then I think, of course, there's, like, how you describe certain, what you think their issue is as a doctor to that patient. Because I think that there's a lot of, like, um, the how the patient's outlook on their own life is going to change. And you kind of have to figure that out as a doctor and, like, kind of balance the situation. It's basically how good is your bedside manner you know? Yeah. Yeah. But as a, as a neurologist, as a neurosurgeon, a psychologist, it's like extremely important. Right. Um, I mean, that's your whole, that's a lot of, you know, your perception. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's super interesting. And, and, you know, I, I don't envy those people for that. I mean, I think that it's a very tough job, but, um, they're doing some amazing work, um, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm excited to, you know, dig into this stuff more in the future. Um, the neurology and the psychology, I think, is very interesting. It's actually something that, you know, I relatively um, haven't learned about that much, um, hmm. especially coming from a family where my mom, like I said, is a psychologist and has multiple psychology degrees. And my brother is a psych major, and now he works in um, UX, you know, very close to the principles of human computer interaction, very psychology influenced, um, discipline. Um, I've done no formal study of psychology in my life. So, um, yeah. Do you ever take like a sociology class or anything like that? No. Nothing. Interesting. I had like, yeah, I had like, obviously like social studies and things like that. Um, you know, like that uh-huh. lightly, but I never even took like, like an AP psych or, um, I don't think they, well, they probably did offer a sociology class in my high school. It was a big high school with a lot of classes. Um, I mean, I had a sociology class, so your school must have had a sociology (laughs) class. I I moved to a much smaller high school than Arik did. Yeah, Um, um, that's true. But yeah, no, I I never, you know, really had the chance, or maybe I did have the chance, I never really took it. So um, there's a lot for me to learn here. Um, Yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject um and i think it definitely helps you i think honestly just reflect on how you process things in your worldview and like how much that can differ um with like just really basic things um yeah 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 super interesting um and yeah i mean overall you know, to be fully transparent, I haven't read this whole book yet. We we talked to you about uh, one of the case studies, and there's many inside of this book. But I'm I'm looking forward to you know reading more of this book and other books um, that talk about this stuff. It's super fascinating. I'll also tease in the future. Um, Margaret and I are going to do an episode on this book called The Hot Zone that I'm reading right now about uh, Ebola, which is amazing. Really, really terrifying and fascinating book but um stay tuned for that one um 
Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about that one. I really love uh, medical nonfiction books. Um, so it's very interesting to me. Yeah. 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 And then um, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe you guys will get Ion back yeah. in the future. Hopefully maybe next week. Maybe I will or... pirate this whole thing. Just be a pirate and steal it from both of you. It's like um, the whole podcast. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> stay tuned for how that develops. Um, if I'll just you think... go and loot Ion's computers, everything he owns, all of his books. Well, okay. So for the <laughs> listeners, if you think Margaret should pirate and take over the podcast, or if you want to put in a vote of support for Ion and I, um, you know, continuing and reclaiming then your land, re- reclaiming our, our, our podcast and then your ip our ip and then uh you know continuing to round robin um with margaret and jules as special guests uh drop us a line contact at rdmr.io um we love hearing from you thanks for tuning in um yeah join us next time bye oh and happy new year everyone happy new year